Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Satya Patel of Homebrew, a seed stage firm that he co-founded with Hunter Walk in 2013. Today, the firm has over 200 million in AUM and has invested in companies such as Chime, Eero, and Cruise. Since I met the team back in 2012, I've always felt that Homebrew is one of the most thoughtful teams when it comes to all components of firm building. And at this week's show, we discuss the hard conversations that need to happen before starting a partnership, the unconventional way they raise their first fund, how they think about consistency and founder relationships, and the art of fund sizing. I really think you're going to enjoy this week's show, so let's get into it now. I'm absolutely thrilled to have this week's show sponsored by Frank Rimmerman, who serve as home for over 500 VC firms for their tax and audit needs. They're also one of the largest providers of services for the emerging manager community. And as somebody that's worked with them for over 10 years, I can attest to the early commitment they made to MicroVC when it was first getting started. If you're a venture firm in the market for audit and tax, be sure to give them a call. Tadia, great to have you on the show. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. There's so many things I want to ask you about, but I want to first start with the uh, journey of starting Homebrew. You had a long career between working at various venture firms going back to the late 90s to product roles at places like Google. When you decided to start Homebrew with Hunter, tell us a little bit about what went into it. What opportunity did you see and how did you decide that, hey, let's now start a firm? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And the honest answer is we had no intention of starting a firm. Hunter and I met at Google in 2003. And over time, we developed a great deal of professional respect and personal affinity for each other. And on top of all that, uh, we like to say that our wives liked each other more than they liked us. When we were each considering leaving our jobs, him at YouTube and me at Twitter, it seemed like a rare moment for us to choose to work together again. And that if we didn't seize that moment at that time, there wouldn't be another opportunity for many years, uh, maybe ever. And so we made the decision we were going to work together before we knew what shape that was going to take. And honestly, starting a VC firm wasn't anywhere near the top of the list. Ultimately, we decided to start Homebrew because we knew we loved the early stages of company building. Uh, We thought we saw a gap in the market, and we thought we could offer a product that could be differentiated and address that gap. So we like to say that, you know, we wouldn't enjoy being VCs, actually. And that, I think, remains true, but we really enjoy building homebrew because it's really a vehicle that allows us to spend our time the way we most enjoy spending it. It's a great story, but one of the things that I always you know, have conversations with GPs or people that are thinking about starting firms is understanding opportunity costs and really assessing, is it right to become an institutional investor and build a long-term firm? Because what you're really signing up for is a commitment that's a decade, two decades, maybe even more. You have always struck me as a product person, as a builder. What were the things that you assessed personally? Because you could have gone into another product role. You had been in venture before. What was the internal calculus you used to get comfortable with? Hey, I'm about to embark on a 10 to 20 year journey, and I need to make sure I'm not going to regret it, especially given the high opportunity costs. Like, what went through your head at that time? I mean, first and foremost was, is there somebody I'm excited to do this with? Uh, I didn't, don't think I ever considered doing a venture on my own, and I wouldn't have considered it without a partner who I felt I had absolute trust and conviction in and who would make me better. And that's always something we ask of new GPs that are coming to chat with us is, 
you know, have you asked those difficult questions of the person that you're going to start your partnership with? And we spent a lot of time, even though we had a you know, nearly 10-year relationship at that point, we didn't take anything for granted. We spent uh, three months plus just making sure that we had real trust and alignment. And we asked each other about our values or personal and professional goals, what we did and didn't enjoy doing, how we felt we could make each other better. And the good news is the last eight years of Homebrew have kind of validated all that work and the assumptions that we made. And we feel incredible about our partnership, um, which also makes it hard to potentially add to the partnership over the course of time. The other thing that we asked ourselves is, you know, what's our reason for being, right? And we kind of asked all GPs who are thinking about starting a firm the same question, like, what is it that you're going to provide that the market needs that founders are going to be attracted to? Um, we really think about it from a product perspective. What got us comfortable and excited was that we really saw a gap in the market. And the way we described it at that time was there were plenty of places to get capital at the seed stage, obviously even more now. But we still think it's largely true that there are very few investors who are willing to commit not just capital, but also sweat and reputation and be the investor of record at the seed stage. That translates into a bunch of strategy and fund decisions. Um, but it's another really important question that we thought about is, you know, why do we think we should exist? And then ultimately, we tried to optimize for how we enjoy spending our time. Uh, we really love the early stages of company building. Uh, when we were executives at companies that had gotten to be very large, that was painful in a lot of ways and took us away from what we loved doing uh, as product leaders, which was working on product and mentoring our teams. You got wrapped up in all the, the bureaucracy and politics of a large organization. And so um, we really wanted to focus on the earliest stages, but be able to do that in a way that didn't require the organization that we worked as part of to scale itself over the course of time. And we were at the point in our careers where we thought that we had some valuable advice and perspective to offer to people who are getting their companies off the ground. So we really asked a lot of hard questions around what was important to us uh, in terms of our goals and, and how we want to spend our time. What did the market need? And did we believe in each other? Um, and I think those are all really important questions for any new GP or set of GPs to be asking before they embark on this journey. Because as you appreciate, being an investor is very different than being a fund manager. It's a different set of questions you need to ask. Yeah, it's an important distinction to really emphasize about the difference of running a firm and just investing a pool of capital. And as you think about building the partnership, it was great to hear how you guys think about the values and, you know, making sure you're aligned. The other part of it, of course, is the technical skills and whether the two of you are truly symbiotic in complementary what you bring to the table for founders. What was the process of analyzing and assessing that? Yeah, in our case, it was easy to figure out because we had known each other for so long and had worked together, right? So we knew what our respective skills were and frankly, what our respective weaknesses were, right? And we had an open dialogue about that. Like, here's where I think I'm great, and here's where I think you're great, and here's where I know I suck, and here's where I think you suck. Can we address the areas that we suck? But more importantly, can we accentuate the areas where we believe we have superpowers? That was potentially a very uncomfortable conversation. But again, because we had uh, such a long relationship, it was 
something we felt was honest and important because again, we were having this conversation before we knew we wanted to raise a venture firm. We could have started a company together or done, you know, X number of other things. But regardless of what business we pursued, we knew the relationship was going to be fundamental. And we saw that based on all the work that we've done in our operating careers and for me in the various partnerships that I've been involved with on the venture side, right? As you know, most partnerships are really like a real estate agency, right? They share a shingle, but each individual person eats what they kill. And there's not a bunch of collaboration and true commitment to working together and making the other person better. And we knew we wanted that regardless of whether we were starting a venture firm or anything else. We, we wouldn't have gone down this path absent having asked those questions and gotten the answers that we wanted to, to hear. Now, you were obviously very intentional in the type of firm and the type of partnership you wanted. And if we go back to 2013, when you were raising Fund One and going out to market, it was at a time where the number of seed funds out there was a fraction of what it is today. And you were still an outlier in how quickly you raised that. And I know that you over-index on institutional investors and going out after those type of LPs versus what most people were doing for their fund ones, which was focusing on family offices. What was the reason behind that? And ultimately, how did you get to a point where you raised the fund in what I think was around 100 days? Yeah, about 100 days, starting at the very beginning of 2013. If I'm honest, I'd say we started with institutionals because we were a little naive. We thought we could always go to the high net worth individuals that we know and the family offices that we know and raise a fund. So why not start with institutions and see if we could get it done? Um, and you're right. We got absolutely lucky with market timing. We were you know, early movers in the second wave of seed funds coming after the OGs, the Harrison Metals and the first rounds and the baselines of the world. And I think that the thing that got people comfortable with what we had was one, in some ways we pattern matched, right? We were coming out of technology companies. Um, I had a prior investment track record. We had been in the Valley for a long time. So we were super easy to reference the shit out of, you know, a lot of the things pattern match what institutional LPs were comfortable with. But I think the thing that got them over the hump is we had a very clear point of view around why we had something different to offer. And that that product that we wanted to offer was very authentic to who we were. And uh, the folks who said yes, and, and clearly not everyone said yes, got that and, and got comfortable that while we were not proven as a partnership, that we had enough history, that we had asked the hard questions, and that we had a point of view around why we needed to exist. The other thing that was super important, which I think you know, GPs don't do enough of, is we had really qualified who we were going to talk to from a potential LP standpoint. Um, I know there are people who've had to talk to hundreds or thousands of LPs in order to get their funds raised. But we decided early on, and this was even more difficult back then, was we were only going to talk to institutional LPs who had been in the venture asset class for a long period of time who had already had exposure to the micro VC or small seed fund um, portion of the market, who we could get a warm introduction to. And that was kind of our way of running the fundraising process like a sales funnel. We had an ideal customer profile that we were going to target. And then we had a schedule that we were going to try to keep people on. And one of the rules uh, associated with managing that funnel was we weren't going to go three days without touching an LP that we were talking to to make sure that 
we and they were clear on what the next steps were or what information was missing in order to make a decision. And so it's the advice we give every GP that we talk to now is think about your fundraise as a sales funnel. And you've got to drive it and manage it that way. And that's why it's super difficult to be both investing and fundraising at the same time, because it takes so much time if you're going to manage it that way. But as you entered that fundraise, you had done your own, you had figured out what your target market was, like you had a product. And so you were looking for that product market fit within that segment. But what we've found typically is, you know, as you get into fundraise, you're optimizing for a couple of things, the right type of LPs and the speed of the fundraise. And on the latter point, you know, what we found historically is bigger institutionals take longer to commit on margin, right? Compared to a family office. What was your thinking going into it? What were you, were you optimizing around, hey, we want durable investors or we want this quickly as possible? And how did you balance the two? Because those two sometimes come in conflict with the type of LPs you were going after. Yeah, we started with the focus on institutional LPs because we wanted durable capital. And frankly, we wanted LPs who would make us better, right? Who had seen enough of the industry and enough of other managers to be able to push us in our thinking and to ask us the hard questions that we maybe had missed or hadn't thought about clearly enough. And so we decided that uh, we wanted our LP base, much like we tell founders around their cap table, uh, to be partners and teammates in building the firm, right? In the same way that investors should be partners and teammates in building your company. That's what we focused on. And we didn't think about speed as a consideration. We thought about being able to do things quickly once we started to get a sense of what the reaction was from prospects that we were talking to. And that's when we put a stake in the ground around when we wanted to close. And the funny thing about LPs is they never feel urgency, right? Because they can always take more time to make a decision, except when they feel like there's scarcity. And so we used scarcity or the perception of scarcity to our advantage. And it helped that we did get an early commitment that allowed us to you know, build momentum uh, towards a close. And, and we were also committed to doing just a single close. We did one and a final close on the same, t- uh, you know, at once. And, and maybe part of that, again, was hubris in knowing that worst case, we'd be able to fill out the fund uh, with institutions that were smaller or high net worth individuals. And we didn't have grand ambitions. We ended up raising $35 million, which was the hard cap of the fund. And the original target was, we only need 15 million to be in business. So once we knew we could get to 15, it kind of didn't matter to us if we got to 35. And so we just pushed to close um, and decided that that was gonna be enough. Again, the, the market has changed a ton. And again, we were super lucky from a timing perspective, but I think there are some lessons to be learned from that still that can apply. I think so too. And scarcity certainly is something that drives a lot of investment behavior. It's also something you can't overplay because if you do, you definitely run the risk of loss of credibility. Then looking at your particular example, so you raised from a number of institutional LPs. And what our finding has been over the years is a lot of the institutions, when they do come into a fund one or fund two, there is this belief and uh, understanding that they can put in more capital as the fund manager gets to a fund two, fund three, fund four, and so on. And those fund sizes will rise to a point where that institutional LP can write bigger and bigger checks. 
you have kept your fund sizes relatively small when a lot of your cohort peers have raised their fund sizes pretty dramatically, both in uh, reaction to the rise of the, the seed market and competition, but also because they have a lot of capital demanding to get into their funds and write, writing bigger checks. How do you balance that? And how do you think about your own fund sizing? We haven't scaled because we think that the product that you bring to market needs to be funded appropriately, right? In the same way that a company needs to be funded appropriately. And so I think Mike Maples famously said that your fund size is your strategy. But I'd argue like that's only the case if you aren't deliberate about your product and your strategy, right? If you're deliberate about your product and strategy, they should dictate your fund size. And for us, our strategy is built around how we want to spend our time, which is working closely with founders to help them build the companies that they envision, starting at the earliest stages. So if we want to spend the majority of our time doing that, we can't make too many investments. Otherwise, we can't spend the time with each founding team that we want to spend. If we can't make too many investments, we need to own enough of the companies that we invest in. Uh, that means a certain ch check size based on the market dynamics of that time. We need to maintain our ownership, so we need to have some reserves. And you get the picture. It all kind of builds on itself in terms of what your fund end up look, ends up looking like. So it's a bottoms-up approach to fund size in the same way that a company does a bottoms-up model to determine its capital needs. The reality is we could have raised more each time that we fundraise, but that would have led us to deviate from our strategy in various ways, right? Because to Mike's point, your fund size is your strategy. And we wanted to be true to our strategy, which dictates then, in turn, a particular fund size. And we think the strategy has proven to work. So why deviate from the strategy? Now, if we were raising fund one in today's market, I'm not sure we'd have the same strategy. Um, but we have eight years of experience and reputation and portfolio companies and you know, references and the results now that we can remain true to our strategy. Right. In, in today's world, maybe you, you would have raised a slightly bigger fund, given that the seed phase now is everything from pre-seed to post-seed. The check sizes to lead a seed round have gone up pretty dramatically since 2013. Yeah, and it, you know our fund sizes have gone from 35 million in the first fund to 90 million in the third fund to reflect that. Right, and let's take the comments about fund sizing to perhaps a broader context and look at the entire universe of fund managers. And within seed, we often see an increase from a fund one to fund two and a fund two to fund three. And I, I always like to think about when I'm talking to these managers, assessing how successful can somebody be as they get up to the next weight class of fund size. I do agree with uh, Mike Maples' comment that your fund size becomes your business model. And that business model, by the way, as you change it, comes with very different skills and experiences that are necessary to be successful at, a, at the different weight class. It also suggests that when you do move up in weight class, you're going to have different competition, uh, your investment model in terms of flexibility on things like ownership and check size and reserves also changes. And I do think there's a fair case that the muscles are different as you move up. How do you think about that? And are there any type of markers that a manager can assess internally to decide that, is it time to increase to a certain weight class or a fund size category? I don't know if you can know inherently. I think you're always betting on yourself, but I think there are ways of, there are ways of testing the market to get a sense for whether they'd be open to you writing lar larger checks, uh, whether LPs would be comfortable with you raising more money 
and having a higher hurdle in terms of returning the same multiple in your funds. When we raised the first fund, before we decided that we were committed to raising a fund, we tested in the market by talking to existing VCs, by talking to potential founders, uh, and by talking to one or two friendly LPs to get a sense of whether what we were thinking about with Homebrew was even viable. So I think there is some you know, research uh, you can do to figure out whether what you have in mind from a strategy perspective, the market is ready for or not. I think there is a harsh reality that a lot of firms face when they go from the 100 to 250K check to the 500 to million dollar check to the you know, million and a half to $3 million check. It's a very different way of investing and a very different reaction from the market and a very different competitive set in many ways. And so people have to be prepared for that. And I think LPs are starting to ask that question more than they did in the past because funds have gotten bigger, faster uh, than they have uh, in the past. And the partnerships haven't necessarily changed from a makeup or a team standpoint to adjust to that change in strategy. I agree with that. And, and I do think a lot of the LPs that are sophisticated also assess managers very differently as they continue to go up on um, things like fund size and maybe even strategy. Zooming out for a second and looking at maybe the broader market, because we do see so many fund managers increase their fund sizes, which you know I do ascribe to what Mike Maples has said in that your fund size really dictates your strategy and is your strategy. Do you agree with the notion that there is a pretty large delta in the type of skills and experience that you have as you increase your fund sizes and as a consequence to increasing your fund sizes, you run these different business models? Absolutely. I mean, if you talk to LPs, I think they treat each of those as a fund one, as opposed to a fund one, a fund two, and a fund three. And, and maybe we're old school, but whether you're building a product for a startup or starting a VC fund, we think that you need to focus to be excellent, right? While it's possible to be good enough and doing a lot of different things, the best VC products are stage and check size appropriate uh, because that's how the incentives are most aligned and that's how the assistance has the most fit for a particular stage of company building. And the reality is, is that finding product market fit is a different skill than scaling from you know, 10 million to 100 million in revenue. And that being the lead investor in a round is different than being a supporting investor in a round. I think, again, this comes down to the hard questions that GPs and funds need to ask themselves is, what are we going to be best in class in? And why is the market going to recognize us as best in class at that particular thing? We really believe like there's got to be focus um, in the product that you're offering in the market and clarity around that from all the other activity that goes into building the fund, right? The marketing of the fund, what you tell LPs, what you tell founders, how you support uh, companies that reflects your ownership, um, all those kinds of things. And so, again, we're probably old school when it comes to this, uh, but we definitely believe in, in focus and that different check sizes, different stages are different skill sets. Yeah, and, and they're different products, right? They're different products you're offering founders and different products you're offering your, your investors. But speaking of products, since you are a product guy, as you think about things like portfolio theory, the way you've constructed Homebrew is you spend a lot of time with founders, much more active, hands-on. And I would presume that means you're investing in fewer companies uh, per year than the average seed fund. 
And a question that often comes up is, what is the right portfolio construction to optimize on one, having enough bets, but also having the right ownership in these? And the opinions are all over the board. Some LPs are like, you need a lot of bets to get one of those massive outliers. And others say, you know, if you're really good at what you do and you either have some domain expertise or you have something that you can provide or you have an eye, you can actually pick better than most. And if you get ownership in those companies, you can make up for the fact that you have fewer bets. First of all, how do you think about that? And second, how did that instruct your model of the type of services you offer founders? I, I guess I should start by saying that admittedly, we're doing things in a way that isn't the easiest way of making money in this business. Uh, but it is, again, kind of how we wanted to spend our time. And so what we think has historically been missing in the market and a model that we believe can generate outsized returns is what we based Homebrew on, right? I think there are lots of por por portfolio construction models that can work, especially in a bull market. Um, but we also believe that portfolio construction needs to reflect the product that you want to offer to the market, right? We aim to be the investor of record, the accountable party that's proactively helpful. You can't do that if you've got a portfolio of 50 or 100 companies per fund. But can you scale being reactively helpful, uh, helpful across a large portfolio? I'd argue, yeah, there are smart ways of doing that. So again, it's all about strategy. But I think there are lots of different strategies that can be successful. And you're starting to see that, right? The, there are many funds that I think are going to deliver really solid returns who have a more diversified approach than us or who have different ownership thresholds than us. But we tried to match what we think is a strategy that sits at the intersection of how we want to spend our time, what the market needed, and what we think mathematically from a portfolio construction standpoint can generate outsized returns. And, and fortunately, that's playing out as we wanted it to. Yeah. Well, again, this goes back to the theme of self-awareness of where you want to fit in and what products you are ultimately offering founders as you build and be consistent about it. But as we even go a, a layer beyond that, so I think about, you know, you offering this type of service and my, my guess is you're playing a board type of member, whether it's actually being part of the board or creating a board type of environment that lasts maybe a couple of rounds, maybe at the series B, you step off. And you can create true scale where you're not now with 50 or 60 companies, you're not on the board of all of them. The other thing is you have to add people to a certain degree to continue to have, you know, the level of service to those founders as you grow. You and Hunter are very close. You've built this relationship over well over a decade now. You know how each other thinks. When you then bring on new people, and I know you haven't brought on any partners, but you've brought on other people. How do you think about bringing those people on so that they align with the culture, the service model? What are the questions that you ask yourself before bringing those people on? We're, we're a pretty lean but mighty team. There's only five of us at Homebrew. And to your point, which was correct, we, we are very actively involved. We almost always take a board seat at the outset. And then we've got an operating model, which has a, a pretty high frequency of regular touch points with the founding teams usually on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. That hands-on model requires a customer service orientation that we screen for in everybody that we hire. And so we spend a lot of time asking the same hard questions of people that we consider bringing onto the team that we asked ourselves, right? Why are you interested in being part of a venture firm? What do you think you can offer to founders that they may not be able to get elsewhere? What are your long-term 
goals and ambitions? How do you enjoy spending and uh, how do you enjoy and how do you want to avoid spending your time? And it's led us to uh, bring on people who we feel very lucky to have on the team and who we definitely feel make us um, and our product better. And then, of course, the very important part of all that is they're all owners in homebrew in the same way that we are. Everybody has their salary, of course, but everybody has carrying the funds, um, uh, no matter what role they play at homebrew. And so we think that creates real long-term alignment and uh, a real sense of teamwork, because to your point earlier, we, we don't do any deal attribution, right? Uh, when uh, homebrew invests, it's a homebrew investment. It's not Sacha or Hunter or Kate's investment. And every single person on our team works directly with every founder. There's no gatekeeper. Like you don't have to talk to Sacha or Hunter to get to Beth, who runs talent for us. Uh, Beth works directly with every founding team. And so, uh, again, we've tried to keep things lean because we didn't want to be parts of large organizations, but we've tried to be responsive to what we think founders need at the early stages of company development um, and have been thoughtful about our product and focused with our product in a way that allows us to keep our eye on what we think are the most important things at the early stages, which really boil down to you know, the product itself. Companies build products. And so we think a lot about product market fit and helping achieve that. Uh, people need to distribute their product. Uh, so we think a lot about go-to-market and all the strategies around that. And then people need to build the organization. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time helping people not just hire, but think about people and processes that will help them scale for the long term, including things like culture and values and performance management and compensation and all those pieces. And so if, if those are the three legs of the stool, so to speak, of early stage company building, which is what we believe, then how do we orient our product and our people to help in those three areas? And we're not trying to be surrogates for things that the companies need to learn themselves, but we want to teach them how to fish and help them be more efficient as they build and grow their organizations. I appreciate you sharing that. And it's always been clear to me the rigor that you employ across the team, really, in terms of driving that consistent value to your founders. So I want to end with our heat check segment. I have three questions for you. Rapid fire. The first question is, in all your time as a VC, what is the best lesson that you've learned? Nothing matters more than your reputation. And your reputations are made in the toughest times. I agree. I've been through two cycles and I've seen people react. And you learn you know, what people are made of during those tough times. So that's great advice. Yeah. I think it's true at the micro level too, right? Like while the macro issues have been, uh, we've avoided largely at the micro level, like every company goes through tough times and most companies fail. And I think how you as an investor handle those situations uh, speaks volumes about you and kind of how you think about uh, and the respect you have for founders and company building. And so reputations are built uh, at the micro level as much as, you know, in reaction to the macro issues. That is a great point, because I, I often think that we forget about these micro type of interactions that we have with people and how much they do matter when it comes to something that's happening to somebody or the company that they run at a time where maybe everything is going well for you and it's not for them. And knowing how those type of interactions and how you handle those and how you respond with the, the entrepreneur, whoever the partner is, does make a difference. And a lot of times what I find is if you don't 
act in a certain way that is conducive to building a great reputation and being a great partner, you actually never know about it because a lot of the feedback isn't given to you, but it's talked about in offline conversations between founders. And, and certainly it happens with GPs where LPs look at some of those micro interactions and talk about it afterwards. And all of a sudden you have some LPs that have fallen off. I mean, in a market where capital is a commodity, it's more true than ever that this is a relationship-driven business. 100%. If you're not taking a long-term view on relationships, and a lot of people don't, they take them as transactional, you're going to set yourself up for long-term failure. Um, and VC is a long-term game, right? Uh, if you're a seed stage manager, you're investing for outcomes 10 to 14 years from now, you're going to be in this business for a long time. So we think about that all the time. You sort of preempted my uh, next question, which is around a piece of advice you'd get for anybody starting off in VC. I don't know if you have another piece of advice that you'd give to somebody starting a fund. You know, I've really been lucky in my career that I've had the good fortune of being an apprentice at a lot of other venture funds. And there are a lot of people who don't get that opportunity for a host of reasons, but I don't think that means that they shouldn't try to find a mentor or a kitchen cabinet of peers. And I think that can be incredibly helpful to somebody uh, who is getting started in venture. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're people who've been in venture for a long time, but I think um, people who are either going through it in the same way as you, or if you're fortunate, somebody who's been doing it for a long time can be really helpful in what is a much harder business to be successful in than people realize. And so that's, you know, probably not a very tactical piece of advice in terms of investing or generating deal flow or any of those kinds of things. But I think it could be hugely valuable in being successful in this business over the long term. And I've certainly benefited from that. So when you think about that, and you, you, know, you mentioned the, the notion of having a mentor, having you know, a group of mentors that can fill in some gaps for you, do you have somebody that you look back on that was particularly impactful for you? In terms of the, the mentorship and what you learned from them, who is that and, and what exactly about them helped you chart your course and really resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, I've learned from so many people, whether they've been formal or uh, informal mentor, mentors. I mean, I've have 14 or 15 years in the VC business now, and I think back to my first job in VC, and I learned you know, the value of really hardcore due diligence in that job. At the next fund I worked at, I learned about fund administration because we were a small shop and I was doing all the LP reporting and kind of CFO-like work in addition to doing deals. And we were focused on the seed stage and I really learned how to evaluate founders. At Battery, I learned about portfolio construction and what it means to be a fund manager. So I've had the very good fortune, as I said, of being an apprentice to a lot of people who I've learned from. And then I've had the good fortune of working with amazing and alongside amazing investors like Josh Koppelman and Michael Deering and so many others who've left their imprint on who I am as an investor and what we're trying to build at Homebrew. And even now, um, one of the people that we turn to regularly for advice and counsel is uh, Kevin Compton at Radar Partners, who is just so deep in the industry, so wise in terms of thinking through the market the challenges of being a GP, the personal challenges of operating in this business. At every step along the way, uh, at every point in my career, I've had you know that mentor, set of mentors, that kitchen cabinet uh, to be able to turn to. And I hope that at some point that I and Hunter and I can 
do the same for the next generation of investors. It's funny to think that in many ways we're like we're the elder statesmen now because we started as you know the early in the second wave of seed managers. So we hope we have something to offer to folks who are uh, getting into the business now. Well, I would attest to the fact that you have and Hunter as a team have helped a lot of different managers through individual one-on-one coaching content like this. I really have appreciated our relationship and all the things that you've uh, imparted in terms of helping me think about the market. And I'm excited about the continued growth of Homebrew. And I really appreciate you being on on the show and uh, have really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. You're doing such a service through the podcast and through what I know you're building and obviously through the long uh, track record of work you did at FRB. So I appreciate all that you do and looking forward to many collaborations going forward because I know that we and you share uh, a lot of views on what needs to change in the industry and what's fantastic about the work that the industry does. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Satya and Homebrew, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released. 